Section 54 of Final Report of the Advisory Committee on Human Radiation Experiments. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kristen Edwards. Final Report of the Advisory Committee on Human Radiation Experiments. Case Studies, Chapter 11, Part 1. Intentional Releases, Lifting the Veil of Secrecy. In February 1986, officials at the Department of Energy responded to requests from activists by releasing 19,000 pages of documents on the early operations of the world's first plutonium factory at Hanford, Washington. Combing through these documents, reporters and citizens found references to an event cryptically named the Green Run, in which radioactive material was deliberately released into the air at Hanford in December 1949. In the aftermath of the public discovery of the Green Run, Senator John Glenn asked the General Accounting Office, the investigative arm of Congress, to find out if there were other instances in which radioactivity had been intentionally released into the environment without informing the surrounding community. In 1993, the GAO reported 12 more instances of such secret intentional releases. Following additional research by the DOD and DOE, the number of secret intentional releases has expanded to several hundred, conducted between 1944 and the 1960s. At the Army's Dugway Proving Ground in Utah, dozens of intentional releases were conducted in an effort to develop radiological weapons, some in tests of prototype cluster bombs, others using different means of dispersal. At Bayo Canyon in New Mexico, on the AEC's Los Alamos site, researchers detonated nearly 250 devices, which contained radiolanthanum, R-A-L-A, as a source of radiation to measure the degree of compression and symmetry of the implosion used to trigger the atomic bomb. Other intentional releases were not classified, although not all were made known to the public in advance. At AEC sites in Nevada and Idaho, radioactive materials were released in tests of the safety of bombs, nuclear reactors, and proposed nuclear rockets and airplanes. In still other cases, small quantities of radioactive material were released in and around AEC facilities and in the Alaskan wilderness to determine the pathways such material follows in the environment. Public witnesses from several of these communities told the committee that they remain deeply disturbed by these releases, wondering whether there is still more information about the secret releases in their communities that they do not know and how much will, at this late date, be impossible to reconstruct. Intentional Releases and the Charter 13 The Advisory Committee is authorized by its charter to examine Quote, experiments involving intentional environmental releases of radiation that a were designed to test human health effects of ionizing radiation or b were designed to test the extent of human exposure to ionizing radiation end quote. the charter also called for the committee to quote, provide advice information and recommendations end quote on the following 13 experiments and similar experiments identified by the Interagency Working Group. 1. The experiment into the atmospheric diffusion of radioactive gases and test of detectability, commonly referred to as 
the Green Run Test by the former Atomic Energy Commission, AEC, and the Air Force at the Hanford Reservation in Richland, Washington. Two, two radiation warfare field experiments conducted at the AEC's Oak Ridge office in 1948 involving gamma radiation released from non-bomb point sources or at near ground level. Three, six tests conducted during 1949 to 1952 of radiation warfare ballistic dispersal devices containing radioactive agents at the U.S. Army's Dugway, Utah site, and four, four atmospheric radiation tracking tests in 1950 at Los Alamos, New Mexico. Tests of nuclear weapons, intentional environmental releases of radiation in amounts greatly in excess of any of the releases identified above were not included in the charter. As discussed in Chapter 10, the committee did seek to investigate human subject research conducted in connection with these tests. This chapter reports on what we found as we sought to retrieve what we could about the releases identified in our charter, determine the nature and number of further intentional releases, identify the ethical standards by which these activities can be evaluated, and determine what lessons can be learned from the past. Part 2. Because of the secrecy surrounding these releases, as opposed to atmospheric nuclear weapons tests, which were impossible to hide, many of them took place with no public awareness or understanding. The intentional releases were conducted primarily at sites such as Hanford, Los Alamos, and Oak Ridge, in which defense and atomic energy facilities were located, but they were largely unknown to those who lived in surrounding areas. There is no evidence in any of these cases that radioactive material was released for the purpose of studying its effects on human communities. As we discuss later in the chapter, the public often was exposed to far greater risk from the routine course of operations of the facilities than from the intentional releases themselves. That the possible health effects from the Green Run and other intentional releases are so slight that they cannot be distinguished from other sources of disease is small comfort to downwinders who were put at risk without their knowledge. The committee heard from many of them and learned that the longer-term costs of secrecy extend well beyond any physical injury that may have been incurred. These costs include, first, the anxiety and sense of personal violation experienced by those who have discovered that they have intentionally and secretly been put at risk, however small, by a government they trusted. But they also include the consequences for that government and its people of the attendant distrust of government that has been created. And finally, they also now include the citizen and taxpayer resources that must be expended in efforts to reconstruct long-buried experiences and determine, as best as can currently be done, the precise measures of the risks involved. The chapter is divided into two parts. The first and lengthier section reconstructs the history of the three kinds of releases that were in our charter, the Green Run, radiological warfare tests, and the RALA tests, and includes a discussion of some types of intentional releases that were not expressly identified in the charter. This section concludes with a review of what is known today about the likely risks of all the releases we consider, as well as a review of the science of dose reconstruction by which this knowledge is obtained. 
In the second part of the chapter, we focus on the ethical and policy issues raised by intentional releases. We examine the rules that currently govern intentional releases in an effort to learn whether secret environmental releases like the Green Run could take place today and, if so, whether, in light of lessons learned from the past, current procedures and protections are adequate. What we know, the Green Run. While the other intentional releases addressed in the committee's charter were part of the effort to develop the U.S. nuclear arsenal, the Green Run was conducted to develop intelligence techniques to understand the threat posed by the Soviet Union. In 1947, General Dwight D. Eisenhower assigned the Air Force the mission of long-range detection of Soviet nuclear tests. Based on observations from Operation Fitzwilliam, the intelligence component of the 1948 Sandstone Nuclear Test Series, the Air Force determined aerial sampling of radioactive debris to be the best method of detecting atomic releases. An interim aerial sampling network was in place in early September 1949 that detected radioactive debris from the first Soviet nuclear test. Around the same time, Jack Healy of Hanford's Health Instrument HI, divisions noticed anomalous radioactivity readings from an air filter on nearby Rattlesnake Mountain. The HI divisions were responsible for radiological safety and Healy had set up this filter to test how radioactive contamination varied with altitude. The rapid decay of his radioactive samples led Healy to conclude that they had come from a recent nuclear test. Soon after news of Healy's observation reached Washington, D.C., Air Force specialists arrived and took Healy's samples and data for analysis. It is not clear whether Healy's observation came in time to support President Harry Truman's announcement on September 23rd that the Soviet Union had exploded its first atomic bomb, but it did confirm that radioactivity from a nuclear test could be detected on the other side of the globe. Now that the Soviet Union knew how to make atomic weapons, the United States needed to know how many weapons and how much of the critical raw material plutonium the Soviets possessed. Like nuclear testing, plutonium production released radioactive gases that sensitive instruments could detect, though not at such great distances. To identify Soviet production facilities and estimate their rate of plutonium production, the Air Force now needed to test ways to monitor these gases. Hanford, the world's first plutonium factory. In 1942, General Leslie Grove selected the Hanford site overlooking the Columbia River in southeast Washington state for the Manhattan Project's plutonium factory. The river would provide a large, reliable supply of fresh water for cooling the plutonium production reactors, and Hanford's relative isolation from major population centers would make it easier to construct and operate the facility without attracting unwanted attention. The nearby towns of Richland, Kenwick, and Pasco soon became boom towns whose economies depended on Hanford. At Hanford, neutrons converted uranium-238 in the production reactor's nuclear fuel into plutonium-239. Chemical separation plants then separated this plutonium from the fission products and residual uranium in the irradiated fuel elements. The first separation plants, the T and P plants, used acid to dissolve these fuel elements, 
but this was superseded by the more efficient redox and purex processes in the 1950s. Part 2. In late 1948 and early 1949, Air Force and Oak Ridge personnel conducted a series of 20 air sampling flights at Oak Ridge and three at Hanford. The results were disappointing. Instruments detected airborne releases of radioactive material at ranges of up to 15 miles in the hills and valleys near Oak Ridge, but no farther than two miles from Hanford because of measures taken to reduce radioactive emissions there. At an October 25, 1949 meeting at Hanford, representatives of the Air Force, the Atomic Energy Commission, and General Electric, the post-war contractor for the Hanford site, agreed to a plan to release enough radioactive material from Hanford to provide a larger radioactive source for intelligence-related experiments. This intentional release took place in the early morning of December 3, 1949, but information about it remained classified until 1986. Two periodic reports of the HI divisions described a plutonium production run using, quote, green fuel elements. The story of this green run has emerged piecemeal since then. The most complete account comes in a 1950 report co-authored by Jack Healy, referred to as the Green Run Report, which was declassified in stages in response to requests from the public under the Freedom of Information Act and inquiries by the Advisory Committee. Although cooling times of 90 to 100 days were common by 1949, the fuel elements used in the Green Run were dissolved after being cooled for only 16 days. This short cooling time meant that much more radioactive iodine-131 and xenon-133 were released directly into the atmosphere rather than decaying while the fuel elements cooled. Furthermore, pollution control devices called scrubbers, normally used to remove an estimated 90% of the radioiodine from the effluent gas, were not operated. When these green fuel elements were processed, roughly 8,000 curies of iodine-131 flowed from the tall smokestack at Hanford's tea plant. This stack was built in the early years of Hanford's operation, when large quantities of radioactive gases were routinely released in the rush to produce plutonium. Although the Green Run represents roughly 1% of the total radioiodine release from Hanford during the peak release years of 1945 to 1947, it was almost certainly larger than any other one-day release, even during World War II. One clear purpose of the Green Run was to test a variety of techniques for monitoring environmental contamination caused by an operating plutonium production plant. A small army of workers, including many from Hanford's HI divisions, took readings of radioactivity on vegetation, in animals, and in water, and tested techniques for sampling radioactive iodine and xenon in the air. The Air Force operated an airplane carrying a variety of monitoring devices, the same aircraft used in earlier aerial surveys at Oak Ridge and Hanford, and set up a special air sampling station in Spokane, Washington. Those operating the equipment encountered numerous technical problems, including a lost weather balloon and failed air pumps. The greatest problem, however, was the general contamination of monitoring and laboratory equipment. The contamination created a high background signal that made it difficult to distinguish radioactivity on the equipment from radioactivity in the environment.
The main cause of this contamination was the weather at the time, which led to much higher ground contamination near the stack than expected. The plans for the Green Run included very specific meteorological requirements. These requirements were designed to facilitate monitoring of the radioactive plume by aircraft, but they were similar to the normal operational requirements, which were designed to limit local contamination. A temperature inversion to keep the effluents aloft but at a low altitude. No rain, fog, or low clouds to impede aircraft operations. Light to moderate wind speeds less than 15 miles an hour. Wind from the west or southwest so the plane would not have to fly over rough terrain and strong dilution of the plume before any possible contact with the ground. Jack Healy reports that he made the decision to go ahead with the green run on the evening of December 2, 1949, even though the weather did not turn out as expected. Some have suggested that the Air Force pressed to go ahead with the release in spite of marginal weather conditions, but Healy recalls no such pressure. The plume from the release stagnated in the local area for several days before a storm front dispersed it toward the north-northeast. As a consequence, Local deposition of radioactive contaminants was much higher than anticipated. The Green Run report concludes, Under the worst possible meteorological conditions for such a test, the airborne instruments detected the radioactive gases at a distance better than 100 miles from the stack. Under favorable conditions, it was estimated that with the same concentrations, this distance could have been increased by up to a factor of 10. Despite the contamination of equipment, the monitoring provided a record of the extensive short-term environmental contamination that resulted from the Green Run. Measurements of radioactivity on vegetation produced readings that, while temporary, were as much as 400 times the then permissible permanent concentration on vegetation thought to cause injury to livestock. The current level at which Washington state officials intervene to prevent possible injury to people through the food supply is not much higher than the then permissible permanent concentration. Animal thyroid specimens showed contamination levels up to about 80 times the maximal permissible limit of permanently maintained radioiodine concentration. In spite of this contamination, the public health effects of the Green Run, discussed later in this chapter, were quite limited. However, in 1949, at the time the Green Run was conducted, the most important environmental pathways for human exposure to radioiodine were unknown. Understanding developed shortly thereafter that environmental radioiodine enters the human body from eating meat and drinking milk from animals that grazed on contaminated pastures. Thus the effects of exposure through these pathways could not have been planned for, and it is fortunate that the risks were not higher. The Control of Risks to the Public from Plutonium Production at Hanford From the first years of Hanford's operation, its health physicists were aware of the problems of contamination of the site by radioactive wastes, and it quickly became clear that radioiodine posed the greatest immediate hazard. Most fission products would remain in the dissolved fuel, but iodine gas would bubble out of the solution up through Hanford's tall stacks into the atmosphere and down into the surrounding countryside. Other radioactive wastes could be stored and dealt with later, and other radioactive gases were chemically inert and would quickly dissipate. 
Over the years, Hanford health physicists adopted three main approaches to the iodine problem. Choosing meteorological conditions for releases that would prevent air with high iodine concentrations from contaminating the ground near Hanford, letting the irradiated fuel elements cool for extended periods before separating the plutonium so that most of the iodine-131, which has an eight-day half-life, could decay, and, beginning in 1948, using scrubbers or filters to remove iodine from the exhaust emissions. During World War II, producing plutonium for bombs was an urgent priority, and knowledge of both the environmental hazards from iodine and the ways to prevent it were limited. Over the period 1944 to 1947, Hanford released nearly 685,000 curies of radioiodine into the atmosphere, about 80 times what was released in the Green Run. After the war, an improving understanding of how iodine could contaminate the food supply, evolving techniques to remove iodine from the plant's emissions, and policy decisions to limit the risks to the nearby population led to a marked reduction in iodine emissions. When the AEC began operation in 1947, it promptly moved to review safety practices at Hanford and other operating facilities, which had operated largely autonomously until then. The advisory panel established for this purpose concluded that the degree of risk justified in wartime is no longer appropriate. To address the radioiodine problem at Hanford and related problems, the AEC established a Stack Gas Working Group, which met for the first time in mid-1948 to study air pollution from AEC production facilities. The chair of this group noted that the AEC desires the removal from gaseous effluents of all radioactive material insofar as is humanly and economically feasible, and that because of uncertainties in risk estimates, no limit short of zero should be considered satisfactory for the present. By 1949, daily emissions of radioiodine had fallen by a factor of 1,000 from their wartime highs. The Green Run clearly did not conform to the practices designed to ensure public safety at Hanford in 1949, or even during the rush to produce plutonium for the first atomic bombs. In his monthly report for December 1949, Herbert Parker, Hanford's manager, concluded that the Green Run had posed a negligible risk to personnel, but the resultant activity came close enough to significant levels and its distribution differed enough from simple meteorological predictions that the HI divisions would resist a proposed repetition of the tests. This suggests that Parker, at least, considered the risks of such releases potentially excessive even for a one-time event, particularly given the degree of uncertainty. Parker's recognition of the uncertainties surrounding environmental risks from Hanford's radioiodine emissions was appropriate. At the time, it was not known that drinking milk from cows that graze on contaminated pastures is the main source of exposure, especially for children. Jack Healy recently suggested that if Parker had known of the milk pathway, he would have objected strongly to the Green Run. The question remains as to the consideration that was given by the Green Run's planners to the possibility that they might not fully understand the risks that might be imposed on nearby communities.
End of section 54.